Hey folks, this is Always Be Watching. It's our regular discussion about, you know, it's it's what we've been watching. It's right there on the name of the darn thing. My name is Dan Barrett and we've got a special guest this week, but we're going to wait until after the theme song. A little bit of sizzle to keep you listening for the next 45 seconds, people. This week, we are going to talk about a bunch of things that you probably want to check out. There's a new film called Mulan, which, you know, people wanted to see in the cinema, but you can't do that because 2020. We're also going to talk about a new HBO show with Jude Law in it. There is a remake of a UK show, which immediately has everyone saying, why must the Americans remake everything? But I ask, have people seen the British version of Married with Children? No, they have not. We'll talk about that in a short while. We've got some other stuff to talk about as well, but those are the heavy hitters. Folks, this is Always Be Watching. We'll be back in just a moment with special guest. Stay tuned. Always be watching. That's the name of the podcast. Dan Barrett, that's the name I've had since birth. Chris Yates, usually with us, but because of the falling out, myself and Chris, first of all, we're not talking. There's courts involved. There's definitely some letters I've got to fill out and sign. Things aren't going so well. But Chris will probably be back next week. I'm sure we'll work through our issues. But until then, I'm like, Chris Yates, handsomest man I know from at least the Southern Hemisphere, who could possibly fill that void? And I've looked to old friend of the podcast, two-time guest, third time returning, unless I've got my math wrong, maybe this is fourth, Simon Foster. Simon Foster, how the heck are you doing? Um, and I'm doing very well. It is such a joy to be here. I, I am sad to hear that, that you and Chris are, are fighting with each other. This is like sitting, I'm like the kid in the middle of a nasty divorce. Like I'm the, the one in the middle trying to, to don't know who to side with. I side with you. Yeah, I was going to say, it's okay, because I, I think we all see who you're sitting with right now and not with Chris Yates. <laughs> That guy. No, we love him. I don't want to use the word lovers quarrel, but that's clearly what's going on here. Clearly what's going on, yeah. But it's good to be with you. <laughs> love talking TV shows and movies with you and uh, uh, big fan of the podcast. I've almost made it through two of them. I just love everything you're doing, so thank you. <laughs> oh, you've listened to more than my mum has, so, you know, we'll go with that. Now, a bit of business I want to just take care of. People may be saying, hey, look, Chris Yates isn't here. There wasn't a podcast last week. What's going on with that? Last week is actually the first week in the history of Always Be Watching that we didn't have a podcast out. Outrageous, I know. But the reason for that is I over-busied myself and I launched a second podcast. That's not why Chris isn't talking to me. That's not the reason at all. He's, he's just doing his own thing. It's all fine. But if you want to hear a second dose of me each and every week, there's a brand new podcast. It's a bit more serious than this nonsense that we do here. It's called the Oz Media Report. And each week I sit down with two people from across the media somewhere. And these are interviews that intersect between media, business, technology, culture. It's basically the melting pot of things that I think that you'd probably be interested in if you're listening to this dumb podcast that we're doing right now. But more serious conversations about weightier issues. So in the first one, we talked about QAnon and the rise of that in Australia. Because I don't know why people in Australia are following this American ideology of nonsense. So we had a chat about the rise of QAnon. So that's very fascinating. And then we had a chat about the future of radio and the young students whom are studying broadcasting right now and what their future is. So as I said, sort of weightier subjects than this ridiculousness. But, you know, it's still something I think people would be interested in. Anyway, check that out. You can find it as at Oz Media Report in your various podcast apps. But Simon Foster... You've had enough of me prattling on. I want to hear you prattling on because you've gone and seen the film that I am actually really super keen to see but refuse to pay $30 to go and see it. It's a film called Mulan. 
Do you know why the phoenix sits on the right hand of the emperor? She is his guardian, his protector. That she's both beautiful and strong. Your job is to bring honor to the family. Do you think you can do that? Okay, Mulan, this new Disney Plus movie. Technically, Simon, run us through it. What's going on? Yeah, Disney Plus have picked up the uh, distribution rights in territories where um, they have uh, an outlet where they are, where they are broadcast. In other territories, it's still a theatrical title. This was arguably the biggest film uh, that uh, suffered because of the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, it was to be a major summer blockbuster along the lines of Disney's live action remakes of The Lion King and um, uh, Jungle Book and various other properties. Um, expectations it, were it, this is a billion dollar movie, a potential billion dollar film at the box office. Exactly right. Yeah, they'd made a lot of money, even off sort of second tier, not very creative ones like Dumbo. Um, they'd made, they'd done very well with, and this relaunching of their their uh, brands as live action films has been an absolute uh, cash cow for them. With Mulan, they were going somewhere a little bit different. This is quite a serious story um, that features a wonderful young actress, Yufei Lu, as, uh, as the title character. Um, unlike other Disney princesses, this is a film in which she's very much fighting the cause for herself. Um, she's fighting the cause for her people's honour, her family's honour. Um, in most other Disney princess films, it's all to do with falling in love with a man. A man is the, the central sort of um, motivator in, in any of these princesses' journeys, whether you think of um, the Beast in Beauty and the Beast or John Smith in Pocahontas or um, even in The Lion King to a certain extent. But in Mulan, it's very much a story of female empowerment um, at a time when the um, agenda was very downtrodden uh, it's all set centuries ago, um, and Mulan has to disguise herself as a man to enter into the, the uh, armies and fight off the hordes of invading forces as run by, uh, as taken over by uh, Emperor uh, Jet Li. Um, it is, a, I think it's a fantastic film. It Look, it's, a, it's been a very controversial film um, for various reasons. Uh, the young lead actress, um, made a few comments in support of the Hong Kong police uh, during the Hong Kong pro-democracy uh, protests. Um, it was also filmed, uh, directed by New Zealander Nikki Caro, who did Whale Rider. Um, a lot of it was filmed in Xinjiang, a region of China where the uh, Uyghur Muslims have been detained in mass internment camps. Um, and there's been a lot of controversy that it's just a bit too white behind the camera as well, that a lot of the key creative parts are are filled by white men or women. But, um, and, and as valid as many of those points may be, um, the product itself, what's up on screen or on the small screen, as it were, is, um, is a pretty terrific work. I thought it was, it's, it's one of the better films I've seen on any of the streaming platforms in a long time. Yeah, so I found, first of all, I don't have a relationship with Mulan as a movie up until now. I was a bit too cool for school when it came out. And much like yourself, you know, both young kids when that movie came out, <clears throat> Yeah, small cough. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like I like I was probably, was it 1997, 98 when it came out? So take, yeah. I was like a 17, 18 year old guy. Like I wasn't going to go along and see Mulan. That just wasn't going to happen. Mm. Don't have any young kids. So there's just been no potential sort of moment where Mulan's entered my life. But I saw the trailer for this. 
really good looking trailer. The question I had when I watched it was that as someone who I was too cool to go and see the Mulan animated film, but, you know, cut forward like two or three years after that, you had all those sort of waifu movies coming from uh, like throughout Asia. So the thing that popularized it, I guess, in the West is things like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. But then for like the next sort of five years, like there are all sorts of movies with um, Asian people on strings, uh, waving swords around, doing all sorts of cool stuff. I was totally into those movies. Like, it was a beloved genre of mine. This kind of feels like a throwback to, like, that sort of era of early 2000s filmmaking. But it seems strange to me that it's in English. Like, that just seemed baffling to me. I couldn't really wrap my mind around that. Yeah, look, that's another... That's another um, uh, argument that's been thrown at it, that... that, it's there's an element of cultural appropriation in using this story and telling this story with these characters, but doing it in, in, in English um, with uh, a white director, albeit a woman director. Um, with regards to uh, Mulan as, a, as an animated film, I was the same. I had no great connection to it. Um, you're right to a certain extent. It seemed a little bit out of kilter with the animated films of the period, even from Disney, you know, we, we'd seen the little mermaid and we'd seen those sort of films and Mulan seemed a different kind of animation style. It still had the cute sort of talking dragon in there, which I think was voiced by Eddie Murphy back in the day, but, uh, and that's been adapted into a far more mystical, far more um, sort of ethereal creature in the, in the Mulan live action film um, to really sort of stunning effect and very moving effect in the end. Um, yes. And, and the wire work, the stunt work, there is a lot of crouching tigers DNA running through uh, Mulan. Um, the, the, the stunt woman who, stands in for the lead actress in a lot of the parts has, has herself become this huge star. She opened up her um, Instagram account and, um, and she's a very attractive young woman with a, that can do a lot of extraordinary stunt work and she's become a star in her own right over the last few days. So um, the movie sort of stumbled a bit at the Chinese box office. It went to, um, uh, it went into cinemas over there because Disney Plus isn't on their televisions and it didn't do that well. Um, but I wish, I, I so wish it had gone, it had gone to the big screen here in Australia because um, the battle sequences, the stunt sequences, the landscapes are just absolutely gorgeous in this film and would have looked fabulous on the big screen, regardless of how big your TV screen is. The cinema experience would have helped this movie even even more so. See, I mean, this is probably the reason I haven't actually seen it, which is that it went premium to Disney on uh, Disney Plus. Everyone knows the story by now, but basically bypass cinemas in order to go straight to Disney with a additional cost on top of your Disney subscription. I'm a Disney Plus subscriber. I've got no problem with the idea of seeing it. But where it sort of falls apart for me is that if I was going to go and see the movie at the cinema, it'd just be me going. So Because I go to the movies a lot by myself because I'm a really cool guy, really popular. Um, So I go along. And so movies for me cost anywhere between 10 bucks if I saw it at the Ritz through to at most, like, about 20 bucks, 20 $22 sure. on, like, a VMAX screen. But I don't want to pay, like, closer to $30 to go and watch the movie at home. Like, it just sort of seems like too much. And fair enough if you've got a family because it's offset quite... Exactly. So the point is, I guess, the point being that, that you know, $30 for a family, and you, you make the point very well, you do go to the movies a lot by yourself, for you know, because of your inability to interact with human beings and the, the body odor problem. But the, the fact that the <laughs> families. Um, 
for 30 bucks, that's a hundred dollar trip to the movies for them to go with parking and dinner and movie tickets. So 30 bucks that you can then watch two or three times over the course of the weekend is a, is a, is a much bigger offer. I haven't seen the numbers. Uh, I know that Disney plus had something like a 60% uptick, um, or, or take up. I'm not quite sure what the term was, uh, based upon Mulan. So it's, um, it's worked out for them. Okay. Uh, but whether that will translate to long-term love for the film and repeat viewing for, for many people, that's still to be still to be figured out. Yeah, I did some very rough sort of back-of-the-envelope math, and I believe it was like about 7 or 8% of the uh, Disney Plus subscriber base, if they paid more money to go and see, uh, see the film streaming through the platform, they've made at least back the production cost back. Wow. So, I mean, yeah. See, you that know. makes good economic sense. You can't blame Disney for doing that. It, the, it's, it's the business side of show business. And um, despite the film not getting the, the, the grand red carpet, big screen um, journey that uh, other films of its kind would have normally got and, and that it was made to do, I think it's still, you know, it's, it, it pays. And it's kind of worrying, I guess, for cinema owners all around the world if Disney can pocket those sort of dollars from sending a movie like this straight to their their streaming channel, then um, you know what is what's uh, cinema going going to look like further down the track? That's one of the questions that we're all sort of looking at. Look, my assumption is that we're not going to see huge budget films like Mulan go down this path. But what will probably end up happening is Disney are a huge believer in the theatrical experience. So for them, it makes so much more sense if you can send a movie to the cinema. It's got the buzz and the sort of clout that comes from having that much sort of bigger. Uh, with so many eyes on a cinema release, it actually creates a brand in itself for any program or movie going forward. So something like Mulan, which is the first live action of a sort of reasonably known, but not like a massive, it's not like a Dumbo level animated film. It's sort of of reasonable sort of belovedness by Disney fans. You've got that, but Mulan now could have had like Mulan 2, Mulan 3. I don't know the story. Maybe she dies at the end, you know? No? I don't want to give too much away. Okay, but, you know, <laughs> uh, assuming that there could be a sequel, there could be a sequel to Mulan. Like, you know, there's a way to extend a universe. There's a way to sort of build that out. Create Mulan sure. as a brand in the cinema, and you've got the opportunity to be able to do more with that brand going forward. But put something straight onto Disney+, Plus, and then suddenly it just kind of becomes content on the service. But I wouldn't mm. be surprised to see them use Disney+, Plus as a platform, kind of like they use the home video market through the, particularly like the early sort of era of DVD in the early 2000s through to the mid-2010s, where you had animated spin-offs from some of their big screen films. But then also, I can see a world where you've got these Marvel films that are becoming Marvel TV shows, but there's a rich library of Marvel characters. Why wouldn't you maybe think, hey, I'm going to do the Falcon and Winter Soldier TV series. I'm going to do WandaVision. But hey, look, we may also take the, um, I can't think of the name of the character, like Rhodey Rhodes, the guy from Iron Man. That's not Iron Man. Sure. Played by Don Cheadle. Uh, I think the character's War Machine. You could take War Machine and have a War Machine movie, put it straight on Disney+, Plus, give it a $60 million budget, which is high, but it's not the $230 million film that I'm assuming that Mulan was probably around that sort of budget range. Yeah, it was. $60, $80 million film. You can easily make that money back from Marvel diehards who'd be more than happy to pay for that as a $30 film in their home. Like I can see that being the future for this kind of a release model. You know, that's really interesting um, what, what you say there because one of the this, one of the sorts of films that has disappeared from cinemas over the last 20 odd years are those little sort of 10 to $15 million budgeted films like like Johnny Depp in Nick of Time or Demi Moore in The Jura, those sort of films that were like 
that were called programmers that could turn up for three or four weeks, fill a cinema, appeal to the fan base, and then be shuffled off to, to you know, sundry avenues of, of revenue. Um, and what you point out there is kind of like a version of that, where that mid-tier film suddenly takes on extra value as streaming content. So we might see a return uh, to, to, to that sort of filmmaking, that sort of film programming um, in the form of, as you say, sort of Marvel or DCU or, or Disney offshoot. So um, it's a changing landscape as we, as we record this. That's right, folks, where this isn't live. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not a voice in your head. <laughs> Roadshow films have just lost the, uh, the Warner media contract so for the first time in 40 years um i think after wonder woman 1984 comes out on december 26 uh, village roadshow won't be releasing warner brothers films in australia and that's uh for that to impact well, i mean we're all sort of keen to see how that impacts australia's largest um homegrown distribution company in village roadshow it's a uh, they get to keep the theme park um we're still not sure about the home video deal um but this is a it's, a it's a really sort of volatile changing landscape in the world of distribution at the moment and that adds to it yeah so this is very much hbo sorry not hbo very much warner media who are getting all, all their eggs in a row eggs in a row ducks in a row i think the duck comes before chickens the egg right? chickens in a basket egg and a chicken it's very much warner media looking at their assets globally and trying to work out the best way for them to financially distribute so they've signed up with universal in australia which is probably tied to distribution that's happening elsewhere in the world so it's probably a bit of a package deal and there's financial reasons yeah. why that's happening but you look at warner media who yes in australia they've got an output deal with foxtel where all the hbo content is available first on foxtel but that can only last a couple more years. They'll end up launching HBO Max globally. And that's very much a public thing that they're talking about that that's going to happen. And with that, they're going to be doing things exactly like what we're seeing here with Disney Plus, which is that HBO Max has already released some fairly big films. So An American Pickle, the Seth Rogen film that came out here last week, I think, at a cinema. Uh, that was an HBO Max original film that went out. And they're already sort of playing around in this sort of mid-tier space. I think about Netflix... Uh, Netflix have picked up a whole bunch of these mid-tier movies, very much the sort of films you were talking about, sort of medium, sort of big sort of stars who are driving like classic sort of dramatic adult movies. So I'm thinking about a movie like, for example, uh, Trial of the Chicago 7, which is the new film by Aaron Sorkin. This is a film that would have gotten a cinema release, but with COVID happening, Netflix ended up buying it. But Netflix are also making a whole bunch of other films at that sort of tier as well. The new uh, David Fincher film, Mank, which I'm very excited by, that's gone yeah, straight absolutely. to the Netflix platform. Like, they're just picking up all these films. And yes, in some territories around the world, you might see a brief cinema release for them. So Trial of Chicago 7 is playing at cinemas uh, not this coming weekend, but next for a couple of days. Mm -hmm. So that's happening. But these big budget movies are just finding their way to the small screen. And that's where they're living now. Yeah, it's really interesting you bring that up because um, uh, as we record, this TIFF has just, the Toronto International Film Festival has just wrapped up. One of the buzzed about titles there was Pieces of a Woman, which stars Vanessa Kirby and Shia LaBeouf as a, a couple trying to survive in the wake of their, uh, their young child's death. Um, they're talking about it as this year's marriage story, referring to the Adam, Adam Driver, Scarlett Johansson film from last year. Um, and Netflix got that, so it'll be playing the small screen. Still Oscar, in Oscar contention, um, just as Marriage Story was, but uh, that is one of the most buzzed about titles for this second half of the year, and, and Netflix nabbed that. So, yeah, as we say, it's a changing landscape.
Yeah. Uh, also from TIFF, there was the acquisition of, uh, gosh, what's her name? Um, Emmy award-winning, Oscar award-winning actress. Gosh, uh, from Watchmen, Regina King. She had her directorial oh, yes. debut. What's the name of that film? It's uh, One Night in Miami. One Night in Miami. And that's Great a film that's film. being picked up by Amazon. So mm. that's probably going to go to cinemas first because Amazon do play around in the cinema space a bit more, but it is something that will just drop on platform in the next few months probably. And, you know, sure. we'll be able to watch it that way. Yeah, Looking forward to it. It's a great film as well. Yeah. Hey, let's move on. There is a brand new TV show that kicked off uh, last Monday called The Third Day starring one Jude Law. Something appalling happened to you. To lose, how are you lost? That was a long time ago. Pain doesn't know time here. We've been through some bad things, but we'll take care of each other. This place is safe. When was the last time you really let go, Sam? Most people are scared of pain. Seeing things. You're here because you needed belief. But your grief wants chaos. Okay, so the third day is possibly the most fascinating TV show that I've come across in some time. Wow. The show itself, I don't actually know exactly what's going on. You got Jude Law, <laughs> British guy, he's driving along in his car, and he comes across a young woman in the forest who looks like she's trying to commit suicide. Uh, she's got a noose around her neck, she makes the jump, and he's able to revive her. She's a young girl, mid-teens, and he says, I'm going to take you back home. There's a small coastal, uh, it's a small island that's just off the side of the coast. Uh, During a certain tide, like the tide goes down far enough for a road to sort of emerge. And so he drives across, gets the girl to a a family. It's not her family because her dad's uh, not around at the moment, but, you know, he'll be back later that night. But he drops her off at this pub where the family, everyone on the island kind of knows each other and his family has looked after this girl quite a bit through her life. Anyway, he sort of starts hanging around at this pub and because the tide's risen, he's not able to get off the island for some time. But he's freaking out because he needs to be able to make a phone call. Telecommunications are really spotty. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, but he's apparent, supposedly, uh, he's got some sort of uh, bribery deal that he's got happening with a home where he's, I think they're trying to make some improvements to the home or they're trying to get an extension on the house. And for £40,000, he's able to get the... Um, like inspector to look the other way and they were able to make the changes to the home that they want. Anyway, if he can't make the phone call, that deal doesn't happen. The 40,000 has been stolen. Ah. The assumption is that the guy who's bribing him has probably also absconded with that money and as part of a way to try to get even more cash out of him. But as you find out, and it's a bit of a spoiler, the Jude Law character actually has the 40,000 in his car. So he's, he's doing something dodgy and we don't know what it is. This is part of the mystery of the show. But the island that they're on is a little bit creepy and everyone's a little bit strange. If you've seen the movie Midsummer, you've got a very strong idea of what's going on in this island. So while it feels sort of quaint and British, it's also got this very strange, they've been isolated away from the broader community for quite a while. And while, yes, they can just go across the road and, you know, meet up with like nearby communities, they're also the community that no one really wants to hang out with. They're just kind of there on their island doing their thing. So everyone's just a little bit weird and a little bit strange. There's a music festival that's taking place in a couple of days' time, and so people are preparing for that, and that's supposedly why the telecommunications have come down. But who really knows? Because there's some, there's some very weird dolls being erected that kind of look a little bit sort of midsummerish. 
like Midsummer is very much, it feels like a prequel to what this TV show is going to be. The actual show itself, and this is kind of why it's so interesting to me, it is seven episodes. There's three that focus on the Jude Law character at the beginning. There's three that focus on a female character at the back end of the show. But the middle episode is not an episode of the TV show at all, but rather it's going to be a live broadcast. I think it's an hour, hour and a half show. It's going to be like a theater uh, production that's taking place. So it's being broadcast out live. Jude Law is going to be in it, but I don't know to what sort of a degree. Like, does he get killed off at some point because the show switches? Does he just appear in the final three as a lesser character? Who really knows? All I know is this show is weird and uncomfortable to watch because you know that some stuff's about to go down with all of it. And there's going to be this live broadcast happening in the middle. And it's going to be... You you mentioned Nick of Time earlier, which is a single-take Johnny Depp film. I believe that this is going to be a single-take... Um, live broadcast as well which there aren't that many single take live broadcasts i can think of so my initial reaction is uh yeah this sounds exciting is that central device of having the live theatrical experience how is that going to play into the story is it gimmicky does it enhance the themes and the ideas that have been used so far so my, my assumption to that is because they are working their way towards a music festival and this has been described as a theatre-like experience, I'm guessing this takes place at whatever that music festival is going to be, Ah. if it even is a music festival. Like, who knows exactly what it is that they're preparing for? They claim it's a music festival, but who really knows? But considering that they are working towards a theatre performance, I kind of think this is what we're going to see as that, like whether it's the theatre performance that they're staging or whether it's kind of there's a theatre performance and there's stuff happening around that. Who really knows? But it's very much inbuilt into the story. So... It feels organic in a way. Got a touch of the Wicker Man's about it. It feels very Wicker Man. It feels very. It feels very Nicholas Cage Wicker Man. <laughs> Look, one of the most interesting things, um, I, yeah, I'm so grateful that Jude Law didn't become a huge movie star when Hollywood was trying to do that to him. They were jamming him into. I was thinking about this while I was watching it. They were trying to jam him into all these sort of starring roles, and it was Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, which I quite loved, but which didn't make him a star and. You know, there was all these other films where they were trying to make, yeah, exactly, to make him a leading man. He's always been, for me, a character actor in a leading man's body. He's got the looks, obviously, and the charisma of a leading man, but he shines in far more darker parts, like Road to Perdition or, or, you know, some of those all, you know, Gattaca to a certain extent, although that was still the the glamour guy role. Um, So to see him taking on uh, this sort of role and this sort of production is... um, really heartening because I think he's he's uh, he's always been a really interesting character to watch even when the material hasn't helped him. Well, what's fascinating is the idea when you use the phrase character actor, that's usually code for actors not exactly traditionally attractive and can sort of be a little bit quirky. Mm. But Jude Law, as he gets older, is just as handsome a man as he's ever been. Like he's in, like he is a movie star when you're watching him. But at the same time, he takes these weirder, quirkier roles and this show, it's a co-production between HBO and Sky Atlantic. And the last time they had their co-production together was... Like, they've done other co-productions. Uh, but with Jude Law involved, there was The Young Pope, which, I mean, that was anything but conventional. Mm, so sure. they had The Young Pope and then a follow-up show, The New Pope. So this is kind of like the new um, extended sort of from that. But if you can kind of appreciate Jude Law performing in that kind of a TV show, like, look at him here, and this is very much sort of pushing that sort of artistic boundaries. There's not much more I can say about the show in that I don't know much more about it other than the fact that there's an episode airing in a couple of hours time and I'm stoked to be able to watch it because this show has just gripped me entirely. 
And part of it is residual, having seen Midsummer over the Christmas break, you know, almost a year ago now. Like that film just shocked me in a way that I hadn't really expected. Like there's just something which kind of just like spooks my very core as a person. Mm. Like you've seen Midsummer, sure. Yeah, both you? versions of it. The director's yeah. cut on Blu-ray and the and the original theatrical version. And I was the same. Um, I had some issues with sort of the, the narrative and the, the how the storyline played out, but the scenes of horror and the the moments of revelation that the the Florence Pugh character goes through were really shocking. Yeah, it really rocked my world too. Yeah, just this visceral nature to it. And like, that just really stuck with me. Like the vibe of that film mm. has just resonated all year for me. And so walking into this, the vibe's a little bit different, but like, there's just such an echo of that. And I don't know without Midsummer would I necessarily have a stronger reaction to the third day. But even so, like I am creeped out by the third day and I'm desperate to see what happens next. And for a TV show to have me that excited, like, you know, it's definitely doing something right. But speaking of excitement, you have a documentary which... I don't know anything about it. I've heard the rumours. As I understand, a man makes love to an octopus. I'm not 100% sure if that's true, though. But we are going to talk about a documentary, which is called My Octopus Teacher. I remember the day when it all started, seeing this really strange thing. A lot of people say an octopus is like an alien. Strange thing is, as you get closer to them, you realize that you're very similar in a lot of ways. It's a hard thing to explain, but sometimes you just get a feeling and you know there's something to this creature that's very unusual. There's something to learn here. So my understanding of this documentary is that you've got an octopus teacher who has a love affair with a young man, and it's clearly inappropriate because, you know, she's got a duty of responsibility to him. How true is this? You're a little off the mark. I don't know what you Googled to get that understanding of the film. No, this is a very sweet documentary about a South African <laughs> yeah. uh, documentary maker named Craig Foster, who is having a terrible career crisis. He's sick of looking through the, the lens of a camera. He, he doesn't want to see the inside of an edit suite anymore. He heads home to the... Um, the South African coast where he grew up and decides to just shut himself away with his family for a few weeks. Um, he uh, sort of rekindles his love of snorkeling, um, decides to head into the kelp bed in just off the, uh, the coast where he lives. And there he has a life-changing encounter with a female octopus. Now, um, the first few encounters are exactly as you'd expect with a wild animal. The wild animal is inquisitive, uh, a bit cautious, takes off, blows the ink in his face at any opportunity that he gets scared. Um, but over time, uh, they learn to trust each other. Um, what's fascinating about the film is that uh, Foster doesn't get involved with the natural way of things. So when the carpet sharks... Um, come hunting for uh, their new, their latest meal. Um, there are some fairly harrowing scenes where the, the, the lady octopus has to fight off a carpet shark, outthink a carpet shark, um, and you are always on the side of the octopus. This is a, a nature documentary in the way, you know, in that beautifully cinematic way that, that uh, David Attenborough has made himself famous for. Um, this is a far more straightforward cutting together of handheld images. Um, uh, 
you know, deep within the oceans of, of, of the South African coast. But what it does do is capture what feels like a real relationship and a very respectful relationship between man and nature um, that ends on a very powerful, very moving uh, note and, and just um, is an extraordinary piece of, of um, nature documentary footage and documentary um, style. What's great about the podcast medium is that we've recorded this meaningful conversation, like you're very much talking about what's going in this documentary, but what you don't realise is that afterwards I've edited the song Hot for Teacher, <laughs> right under the bottom of all of that. Well, it's fit. it's used in the film, so we'll have to clear the rights for it, but that's... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, this actually sounds really incredible. So I'm a little bit tired of the Richard Attenborough style of documentary mm-hmm. because the one thing that frustrates me is that they'll talk about like the beauty of uh, some of these sort of regions, but there's no um, connection, I guess, to what's happening in terms of the maritime life. Like I remember watching, it might've been like Planet Earth 2 or one of those um, later series that he's done and just talk about like the beauty of the Great Barrier Reef. But at no point does he actually talk about the threats to the Great Barrier Reef. And there's a great opportunity to say that, hey, there's something beautiful happening here and we should be paying attention to it. But also this is under threat because of this. And there needs to be that um, real world um, relationship that this um, area of the world that's that's unknowing, like there's no way that the fish know that they are under threat other than the fact that, you know, uh, their lives are maybe a little bit different than they were, you know, two or three seasons Mm. before, however long a fish Mm. lives for. Uh, but, you know, like, why aren't we actually taking the opportunity to talk about this? But this actually sounds like it's a story of a guy who is involved in a landscape, but isn't actually actively tampering with the landscape. It's a very prime directive. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. He understands um, the value of this undersea world, of this coastline, not only to him and his mental health, and, and that certainly comes through in the film, but also to... Um, the the, the uh, fauna the flora the fauna of the area um, and the greater environment that surrounds it the life that is just pulsating through these kelp beds um, is extraordinary uh, and very welcoming you know the footage of him swimming with the sharks and swimming with the seals um, uh, the place is full of pelicans it's a, it's a really extraordinary sort of view inside uh, a world that I didn't know much about. I don't know much about South African, the South African coastline. I immediately think of the great white shark because that's one of the, the feeding grounds of some of the biggest sharks in the world. Uh, but this water is very shallow, quite warm in parts. Um, and, the, and the way that the octopus takes on a personality and takes on a life and in one extraordinary scene um, comes to the surface of the water wrapped around the, the man's hand um, in a very tender sort of embrace, it's yeah. Look, you know, it's it's a just a sort of documentary that I'm glad was being brought to us by Net, the Netflix people, and um, hopefully we, we get to see more of in in the wake of its um, wake of its success. Does this have any social messaging to it? So obviously, you know, animals are at threat from you know various sort of activities that mankind's involved in. Does it delve into that at all? Or is it really just sort of looking at the life and surrounds of an octopus with this sort of man's involvement within it's, that? I guess because it's such a rugged coastline and, and man hasn't encroached upon this uh, part of the world to any great extent, this is more about the um, personal interactions, the, the, um, the bond that this man and this animal shared. I guess the... What, what I was minded of was the old um, movie Born Free, where the lion um, becomes friends with the, the caretaker and, um, 
and it shows that within two very diverse species and, and with all the differences we have, there is a bond that we're just living creatures, that there is a connection, um, even if it's a slimy mollusk, or as the filmmaker describes, it's essentially a snail without a shell. Um, it is an incredibly intelligent animal. That intelligence takes on an emotional aspect. And, and all of that is earned. There's none of the, and I do have trouble saying this word, there's none of the anthropomorphizing of, of, of the octopus um, as, you, as, Anthropomorph- yeah. as you would expect to see in maybe a Disney film. This is uh, the man comes to the octopus on the octopus's terms. And by the same token, the octopus returns that respect um, and that affection, if you want to read that into it. Um, in, in a similar way. So yeah, it's, it's a beautiful film. I should have played Octopus's Garden and not Hot for Teacher. <laughs> I regret my mistakes now. Hey, I just want to wind things up with a very brief conversation about a US remake of the TV show Utopia. Jessica Hyde had a daddy who was a genius scientist. Now Jessica and her daddy were held by an evil villain named Mr. Rabbit. He made Daddy Hyde create horrible viruses. Until one day, a hero named Artemis broke out Jessica and her daddy. Mr. Rabbit sends his henchmen, the Harvest, after them. The Harvest kidnapped daddy, so now Jessica Hyde has to save him. But that's just the mythology. Dystopia appeared in 2014, and if you're smart, if you're really, really smart, you can study it and decipher all the real-life epidemics it predicted. Here, Ebola, MERS, Heartland virus, just to name a few. See, that's why we need Utopia, because who knows what horrible things are coming next. I mean, why do we keep feeling like it's the end of the fucking world? Because someone is ending the fucking world. You're not getting it. Look, look, microcephaly, mosquitoes, hmm, hmm? Zika! We're gonna fight the next Zika! One. It kind of reminds me of what you say about God. If the ignorant want to believe, they'll find a way. Okay, so that is Utopia. It's an American remake of the very popular cult TV show Utopia, which was a UK production from, I want to say it's like maybe about 2005-ish. It was kind of like right at the sort of beginning of like the peak TV premium drama Um, trend that we've seen for like the last 20 years now simon it strikes me this is the sort of show that you would have been completely across have you seen the original Uh, i remember it uh, vaguely yes um i know of it and had seen a few of the episodes i'm very excited about this remake a because it stars jessica roth who i just adore from the happy death day films um and because it is a, a very unique what appears to be a very unique retelling of a british property and that doesn't happen very much they don't often get uh, when they, they cross the, the pond, um, they don't often get it right and vice versa, of course. Uh, but this looks this looks special. Yeah, so this is a series that David Fincher was trying to adapt for quite a few years and it never really came together for one reason or another. But the person who's actually behind this is Gillian Flynn, who was the writer of the book Gone Girl and wrote with, uh, like did the film with David Fincher, mm-hmm. Gone Girl. And I'm guessing that's how she got involved in this property. I don't think Finch is involved as a producer, so I'm not quite sure where the sort of relationship is there. But this is very much Gillian Flynn, who she knows how to write. She's definitely a incredibly capable writer, and she's good. Like, this is a, a pair of hands that you should want to see a property like this in. It's got an incredibly strong cast. You mentioned Jessica Roth. Uh, Dan Bird, who people would remember from shows like Cougar Town, 
the, you know, terrible show name, but like half decent mm. show. But you've seen Dan Bird at a whole bunch of things. Rain Wilson from The Office is in here. Uh, Desmond Borges, who we just heard then on the clip. People that know him from You're the Worst, uh, but he's also been one of these sort of regular appearance, uh, makes regular appearance around the place. John Cusack is a regular in the series as well. And the very fact that John Cusack isn't being pushed out there is, hey, look, this is John Cusack doing television. Mm. Like I find just kind of incredible because that should be something that should sell a show on its own. But this is a series that's very much being driven by the fact that, hey, look, there's a unique property from the UK that has a lot of cult interest behind it. We think that this is a show which is worthy of an adaptation that you're really going to enjoy. That's the general vibe of all the marketing surrounding Mm. it. This is a show where it feels like it is no surprise at all that they're launching at the same time as The Boys is playing season two. Very similar audiences for both of these programs. Utopia, I would say, is probably a little bit more dour and nowhere near as... um, I don't even know how to use the phrase. Like, talking about The Boys, because The Boys is very much a show for boys. Like, it's kind of... It's a little bit gross in sense of humour. It's a little bit gross in terms of excessive violence. Utopia probably talks to that same audience without being sort of anywhere near overtly gross and as juvenile as I guess maybe the boys revels in sure. being. And that's that's not a criticism of the boys either. I think the boys does that incredibly well in a very sort of grown up juvenile yes. way. But Utopia really is a drama for grown ups. What's the show about? I'm not entirely sure. So I'd seen the UK drama, like maybe the first two episodes, and I never continued with it. But from what I understand, the plot of it is very similar in that you've got a group of people who are obsessed with this comic book, like a series of um, like comic book trades, like it's a very artistically driven comic that people are obsessive over. There's a group of people who find out that there's some discovered arts from the mysterious creator of this comic that's been discovered in a house somewhere. So these people are auctioning this art off that in a hotel room. And while there's fan conventions happening in a hotel, these, uh, this group of people are upstairs in a hotel room, like talking to people who want to come and buy the artwork from them. And so this group of fans have descended on this hotel with the idea that they don't really have enough money to be able to buy the art from these dealers that are up there. But if they try to maneuver their way around, if they sort of swindle them to an extent, they can bring that price right down and maybe be able to actually get a hand of it. In terms of the fandom behind this, there's a group of fans who are just obsessed with like the sort of shallowest aspects of it. But what they don't really realize is that the art itself is incredibly intricate and is pointing to lots of, it's, it's a bit hard to really work out what it is from this first mm-hmm. episode, but it's either like an end of time sort of biblical thing going on. There's something to do with diseases, but all the art is very deliberately sort of laid out on a page, which has a lot of hidden messages to it. And is very much, you know, your Da Vinci Code style of, I need to crack this mystery. There's great global consequence to it. The show, if people are fans of the UK one, I'd say that the show's not as dour as the UK version was, as I recall it being, but it definitely, it definitely feels Americanized. But the complaint that I'd probably have with it is that you had this original series from the mid-2000s that's being done now 15 years later. And what's happened in those 15 years? Suddenly comic books and geek culture has gone from being a backroom thing that's happening in the basements of um, shopping centers, like in terms of comic book stores. Like it's not like comic book stores, like in the early 2000s, they weren't necessarily raking money in. And you can certainly say comic book stores these days don't either. But these were stores that were definitely sort of out in industrial parks. They were like in crappy shopping centers. They were never really anywhere that you'd ever actually want to go to. And my memory of Utopia was that they go into a comic book store and it was very much in a basement somewhere. It was like fluoro lights, which is like a gross mm. place to be. 
And that's kind of what comic book stores were back then. Now they're actually kind of a cool hip place that you might want to go to. But the show itself doesn't really reflect that so much. It just kind of feels like they're not really playing around with the conventions of a comic book convention. Are they setting where, it in 2005? Is it set sort of 15 years ago when the, the, the it, original series? Like as far as I can tell, because I'm pretty sure they're using mobile phones okay. and it seems like modern tech. So I believe it's contemporary modern day. It just kind of feels like there's this uh, like cultural gap between the world that the show was created as opposed to the actual world that it exists in. And for me, if you're going to do a remake, maybe you need to address that because the context of the show has changed somewhat. But at the same time, the show's doing something quite different that actually feels out of step anyway from where a modern day comic book publisher would be. So maybe you don't even really have to care about comic books to just understand what the show sure. is sort of creating in terms of the fake world around this. And like the idea of... The other thing that kind of bothered me a little bit is that you've got this group of people who just discover the artwork and understand that it has value to it. But it just kind of feels like it's amateur hour of these people who don't really bother learning how an auction works. And when you're looking at this, it isn't as those shows depicting people who don't know how an auction works, but really it just kind of feels like the show itself, the people writing it, don't really understand how that kind of an auction Mm. would work. It just kind of, it just, there's something very sort of fake feeling about it. And maybe the further you get into the series, the more that vibe kind of just takes over and you're willing to go with it. But I don't know, that is definitely something that held me back a little bit from buying into the validity of the world that's being established. But by and large, a really enjoyable hour, and I'm very keen to see is more. Is the, uh, the original UK series, does that have some fervent subset of fans and followers that demanded it be remade or contemporised? This is the thing. I don't think anyone was calling for yeah. it to be contemporised. I think I think Hollywood was calling for it to be done. David Fincher was trying to get it done. But like no one else has really asked for this to happen. And if anything, the fandom of the original series are people who were probably in like their early to mid 20s in the, you know, when the show actually aired and are now there in like their early 40s and they've got fond memories of the show, even if no one's probably actively watched the show mm. since then. Okay, but the word I'm getting from people is, is it as good as the British one? Like, why have they done this? Like, people are a little bit annoyed that this show exists. Yeah. Well, so it's going to be just interesting to see what that fan reaction is not, to it. And I think when they watch the first episode, they'll be won sure. over. But yeah, there is there is something distancing to well, the Well, John show Cusack well. is a is a big uptick for me. Obviously, he's a Gen Xer. He's the, he was the main man back then. And um, to see him... He is Gen he X. He is Gen X, exactly. And uh, he wavers between interesting, darker projects and some of the Nick Cage-type bill payers that, um, that he starred in lately. But uh, this looks like something that he's he's got his heart set on, so that's good. I feel like he, as a man who's in charge of his own career, never really understood what his worth was and what he was bringing to the mm. screen. So for a couple of years, he was doing a whole bunch of the slightly edgier rom-coms. And I think he was trying to rebel against yep. that. But at the same time, he was kind of in that in an interesting space. And it feels as though, because it it feels to me like he went from high fidelity to, I want to say the film was called Identity, Mm -hmm. which was a terrible sort of post-Sixth Sense, uh, like plot twist driven. I have quite the issue with you calling it terrible. I really enjoyed Identity. I think that- Really? I'm sorry to hear that. That John Cusack, um, he sort of rolled the dice on big A-list stardom with a film like Con Air. But in the end, he didn't sort of fit the mould of the the um, happy to play that kind of game. Whereas Johnny Depp got to that point in his career and said, uh, do, I, do I want to make really interesting dark arty films? Or do I want to be Jack Sparrow for the next 20 years? I'll be Jack Sparrow. So he, he went off and did that. Whereas Mr. Conair, John Cusack went, do I want to keep doing that until I'm old and grey? No, I'm going to go off and make some sort of dark, more interesting things. Sometimes to the detriment of his career, he made that great Stephen King at adaptation 1408 with Samuel Jackson 
Um, but his starring roles were few and far between, but he seems to be choosing more interesting stuff now. Yeah, it just kind of seems like he rejected what kind of made him work as a screen presence and thought, look, I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be part of that. I need to remake myself. But it kind of feels like in remaking himself, he just completely jettisoned what was working about him and just went in an entirely different way where maybe the smart move would have been to embrace some of those roles and just try to evolve into that next yeah, stage of his career. Yeah, I can career. say that for sure. For sure. Yeah. Anyway, I've got nothing else to talk about. No, I'm, I'm done. finished here. Can I go back to the beach? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you can go back to the beach, but before you do, the one thing that always be watching is Bills Upon is plugs. And look, you've got some good things to plug. And pretty much the same things you were plugging last time yeah. you were here, but I'm happy to hear them again because they're happening well, For again. some reason, I chose 2020, the year of a global pandemic, to take on two festival director <laughs> roles, one for an existing festival, uh, Monster Fest. Uh, I'm festival directing the Sydney leg of that. Uh, that happens over the uh, Halloween long weekend at Event Cinemas George. Okay, so is it actually in cinemas? Like, how is this Absolutely. Um, they are determined to have it as a physical event only. They'll be screening in the Event Cinemas in George Street in Sydney and at sites in Brisbane, uh, Adelaide and Perth and, and Canberra, I think. I'll have to double-check on that, check the websites. Um, unfortunately... As we go to where the Melbourne event um, has been cancelled because of their lockdown period, but all the other sites will be rolling out over the uh, Halloween long Halloween weekend um, with some really sort of interesting dark films from all around the world. Um, and then the other thing I decided to do was start up my own Sydney Science Fiction Film Festival, which will be happening at the Actors Centre Australia Auditorium out at Leichhardt here in Sydney. Um, from November 19 to 21. And I've literally spent the last six months glued to my couch watching some of the strangest films from all over the world to, to whittle down to 10 features and a whole bunch of shorts that'll be screening uh, at that event. So November 19 to 21 for the Sydney Science Fiction Film Festival and October 29 to 31 uh, around the country for Monster Fest. Excellent. Well, I'll put out the URLs as part of this podcast so people can check the notes and follow that through. In terms of cinema, so I kind of, you were saying that you've picked the wrong time really to be doing this <laughs> this year in 2020. But I kind of think that at the end of the year, you've actually got a very sweet spot where, look, I'm someone who goes to the movies every week. Every Saturday morning, I usually go and see a movie and it's the way I kick off my weekend, which is usually why I go by myself. It's like I wake up first thing in the morning walk the dogs, go to the movies, see something, and then I'm kind of done by like midday-ish and I can kind of get on with my weekend. It's a nice little tradition I've got. But the problem I've got is that we're reaching a point where Tenet released okay in mm. cinemas, but it didn't do well enough that all the other distributors are a little bit freaked out right now and have pulled all their big release movies until possibly the end of the year, if not going into 2021, or yet to be dated in the case of Candyman. Yeah. So suddenly there's this big gap in the calendar where there's actually no interesting movies being played for a while. And I'm really just going to be reliant on old classics making their way back into cinemas. So I've already gone through the Back to the Future movies a few weeks ago in the cinema. I've seen the Star Wars movies. There's Jedi this weekend, but I can't imagine that they're going to be playing it again. So it's kind of just reaching this point now where I'm going to be scratching around looking for interesting stuff. And lo and behold, here's two festivals that I think are going to fill the bill really nicely. That's what we're counting on. We think that uh, certainly for the October festivals, for Monster Fest, um, there will be a big void in the marketplace where people like you, you and I will want to see new interesting things at the movies. Um, yeah, the, the experiment with Tenet has proven to be a, a bit of a false start in terms of the 
the box office rebounding after the pandemic. Um, what Warner Brothers were particularly scared of happening, and that was releasing it to a lukewarm warm response in overseas markets would translate to a, a lukewarm response in the US market seems to have come to fruition. It'll, it's, I think, as we talk today, it's heading somewhere around the $220 million mark internationally, which is certainly nothing to sneeze at, but they were, I know that the, um, the Warner Brass was hoping for a whole lot more than that. The next big one coming out, probably the new Bond, would that be fair to say? Yeah, if that happens, though, like I'm just waiting for here to hear word that it's been yeah. pulled because I can't imagine it's going to get released. Yeah, um, everyone's fairly happy with how Bill and Ted face the music and done, and that's great because it's a really fun film and, and deserves all its success. Um, so low budget movie, yeah, exactly. Though. So it, it was, you know, always on chart to, to financially do okay. Um, yeah, so we're hoping that with our festivals and with the fact that we're, you know, promoting and bringing to screen something uh, very new and different and exciting, uh, you know, the, the audiences will come back. Tickets are for sale via the Event Cinema's website for all the Monster Fest ones, and tickets will go on sale very soon for Sydney Science Fiction Film Festival. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to being one of five people in the theatre. <laughs> if we get five, we'll be very happy. So thank you, Dan. Thank you very much. <laughs> No, no, no. Like, I'm, I really do think that this is going to be quite a draw card because really there is nothing else happening in cinemas. Like, this is the thing happening as far as cinemas concerned for the rest of this year because if you're not coming to this, you're not seeing new movies that are going to be half decent. But my question to you is you're launching this at a time where there's a pandemic on, uh, particularly in the case of you've got one set that will take place at event theatres, but then you've got another that's playing at a non-cinema, like non-traditional mm-hmm. cinema. Uh, what are you doing in terms of physical distancing and maintaining uh, The event team have a very strict policy in place. So Monster Fest will just adhere to, to whatever the, uh, the venue organisers d- demand of us and the audience. Um, and quite frankly, so has Actors Centre Australia. They're a teaching institution. They've um, Australia's second largest teaching institution behind uh, NIDA. Um, They've got a student body of something like 400 students on site. So they went through a period of having all their classes online, but have for the last few weeks already been back in class and they've held uh, theatrical productions and the auditorium has been open for specific events that have been streamed online. So um, the conditions are all in place for the festivals to to go ahead as planned. Um, we're holding off on announcing anything regarding the November festival because we're not sure where we'll all be by then. Um, but see, the good thing is I'm not going to lose money because I'm charging $60 a ticket. So I only have to sell three or four. <laughs> no, that's a lie. Don't be scared away from that. <laughs> oh God. I was just trying to work out how my wife was going to deal with it. I'm like, Oh my God, that would not be a, that'd be not be a conversation I'd want to have, but I'd still pay it because I'm desperate. Good to see man. Movies. That's the attitude we like to hear. Thank you, Dan. Anyway, Simon Foster, it has been an absolute delight. I'm looking forward to hearing you regale tales of going to the beach. And as I sit here in suburbia. And I do hope things work out with you and Chris, because I don't care what everyone says. I think he does a good job. Look, he's fine. He's all right. But you know, he brings the looks and not much else there program that, that's he is the he is the brawn and you're the brains that's very true what a sad state of affairs this is folks this has been always be watching we'll be back next week myself chris and special guest oh, do i talk about who it is no i'm not going to say who it is but it's a good one folks not like it's i mean simon's been no, good wasn't i a good one <laughs> well you were pretty good but we've got tv level oh. talent coming through oh, next I week fight with that yeah yeah all right thank you dan exactly he's got smiling he's got big teeth Anyway, folks, this has been Always Be Watching. We'll be back next week.